Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the podcast, excuse me, they want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. Now, if you want to learn more about the Empowerment Alliance, what they're fighting for, or help support the work they're doing, please visit TEAOGGN.org. Again, that's Tango Echo Alpha Oscar Golf Golf November.org. There'll be a link in the show notes, and I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence, and I hope you'll check them out and sign up for the newsletter and give them some love. They make the show possible, and we certainly do appreciate that. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. So a couple of uh, couple of headlines we're going to start with, a couple of housekeeping items, I should say. Uh, first off, I received a very nice compliment from Noah, a listener who uh, left a, a nice review and a, a comment on the uh, Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for that. It was very... Um, uh, very, very nice. It was uh, over the top, I thought. it's uh, I'm not that good. But thank you so much for your kind words. I very much appreciate it. Um, that being said, if anyone has any questions, thoughts, comments, anything like that, or a subject they want me to tackle, please feel free to uh, send them in at uh, jordan.driscoll at oggn.com. So, Next item on the housekeeping list, and that is uh, some future episodes we'll be hitting, is as I've alluded to before, my plan is to eventually do sometime this year a episode doing a bit of a deep dive on the history of the uh, U.S.-Iran beef, what our problem there is. I also plan on doing a uh, special episode on why Woodrow Wilson sucks. So my Woodrow Wilson hate episode, that'll be coming up sometime down the road, probably sometime next month, actually. I'll probably do it in... um, probably have that one drop around the same time as uh, Income Tax Day, since uh, he's who we have to thank for that. And also, uh, next up on the list is the Scandals series, which we're going to kick off today, actually. So, initially, my plan was to do one episode and talk about the 10 biggest geopolitical scandals with impact in the energy sector. And I started doing the research on this a few weeks back, um, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where I realized that there was no possible way I could get 10 of these in one episode, not not, while giving them, you know, the the depth I thought they deserved. Some of them might be a little faster than others, but some of them are just really, really big. So I figured I'd have to break it up into parts, and um, in fact, the particular scandal that we're going to talk about today is, is going to be the entire episode because it's quite an ordeal. 
And so, yeah, this will be the first of the Scandal series. So um, that'll be uh, that'll be a thing that we kick off here right now. So the reason that we are picking the Scandal we're picking today is because it happened nearly a century ago, and that is the Teapot Dome Scandal of 1922. Now we've got our uh, traditional black roast or dark roast going here uh, for our coffee. And I'm going to tell you something. Teapot Dome, when I first read the little blurb on it that I initially started with, I thought, okay, this is pretty soft. Who cares? But once I started doing some digging, it was astonishing. It was like an onion. The more you peeled it apart, the more insane that it got. And we're going to go through it tonight. But I can tell you right now that wherever you think <laughs> this story ends, you're incorrect. If you think this is just a small-scale scandal, you're just wrong. This takes some wild turns. So, without any further ado, let's get into the Teapot Dome scandal. Story starts off in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, the Golden Age, Gatsby, Art Deco, Prohibition, and of course the rise of the bootlegger mafia. Now, in the early 20th century, as we've talked about in other episodes, oil was just now becoming a strategically important commodity. Um, prior to this, Coal was the mechanism that fueled the world such as it was. But at this point, after World War I and during World War I, people were starting to use oil for automobiles, tanks, airplanes were even starting to come into vogue, blimps, and, of course, naval ships or ships in general. Uh, and during this time, the U.S. Navy was actually transitioning their entire fleet from coal-powered to oil-powered. And this presented something of an interesting challenge, an interesting realization, that is that oil was really strategically valuable uh, to the U.S. military, and particularly at the time the Navy, which was by miles the largest consumer of it. So it was decided in 1910 under President Taft that the Navy needed to have some degree of a strategic reserve. The problem was they didn't have a way of storing the stuff very efficiently at that time. So there was no strategic petroleum reserve, for instance. Uh, so the idea was that they were going to have uh, certain federal lands that were expected to be able to produce oil, and they were going to give those to the Department of the Navy. President Taft signed an uh, executive order transferring several federal oil-producing lands to the Department of the Navy to own and operate those lands so that the Navy had its own self-sufficient method of generating oil, of creating oil producing it. Uh, that way, in the event of another war, like the one that you know would happen in the uh, 1910s, the Great War as it were, the Navy would be self-sufficient. They would have their own means of getting oil. They wouldn't be subject to price volatility on the market. And they also um, would not be subject to any sort of import or export issues with supplying the ships of their fleet. So it was a pretty elegant and good idea at the time. The problem is, of course, the Navy doesn't know how to run oil fields. The Navy doesn't have people for that. They're, um, that's just not their bailiwick. That being said, this little operation did continue for some time. Fast forward a couple of years. World War I happens. Uh, like I said, this, this, this operation was put into place in 1910. If you fast forward to about 1920, a decade later, you've had World War I is kicked off. You've had Taft has left office. You've had um, uh, President uh, Warren G. Uh, or no, no, you had President Woodrow Wilson, old Woody Wilson there, had his tour of office, that shit show. And then you have, and yeah, if you can't tell, I don't really care for Wilson. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, 
Um, but by the time that uh, Woodrow Wilson died, uh, or at the time of the next election, you've got Warren G. Harding coming in as president. And Warren G. Harding was a character who was not expected to actually be president. He is prior life. He was a journalist. He ran a newspaper. Um, he had a number of health and, and possibly even some mental anxiety issues. Uh, before the guy ever ran for office, while he was hitting a newspaper, he had five different panic attacks that put him into a uh, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which, fun fact, the Battle Creek Sanitarium was the sanitarium run by the Kellogg brothers, yes, those Kellogg brothers of the cereal, uh, where they would try and refresh people's minds and do all their sort of their wacky stuff. I'm honestly, I can make a whole show just on the crazy shit the uh, Kellogg brothers did at their their sanitarium, but that's that's going to have to be a <laughs> it's probably not for the OGGN network, but they they did some crazy stuff. Look it up sometime. Anyway, Warren G. Harding spent five different bouts in there before he ever ran for office. He eventually became a senator and eventually managed to become a dark horse candidate at the Republic National Convention. And for the most part, the Republicans were not seen as very likely to win the election, and they ended up winning in a very significant landslide. Um, Harding himself, aside from having numerous health issues, uh, had also, being from Ohio, made quite a few friends with some very influential and important business people in Ohio that would eventually move to Washington and follow him around and become the quote-unquote gang or the Ohio gang, uh, which was a group of about a dozen or so just extremely wealthy oil tycoons, railroad tycoons, you know, you name it, any kind of tycoon. They were they were in on this, and they became sort of his closest advisors. Many of them wound up with positions in the cabinet or other governmental appointments or with very lucrative government contracts. Now, Wargy Harding was well-liked by the people. He won the election in a landslide, and for the most part, his campaign promise was really simple. We've had some crazy shit happen in the past 10 years with World War I and you know, some of the very significant changes that happened to the federal government under Woodrow Wilson. So obviously, what the country needs right now is a return to normalcy. That was his sales pitch. That's what got him elected. And everyone thought he was a trustworthy, good guy who was pure and virtuous and clean and was going to right the ship and put us back on track. And for the most part, I'm not saying he did that, but that was the perception of what he was doing. So Harding gets into office and... Um, you know, while his public perception may have been that he was this virtuous champion of returning to normalcy, he had some quirks. Uh, for instance, he had sex with a lot of different people. In fact, it's come to light in recent years, his notebooks, that detailed entire schemes and codes and volumes of books on all of his various different mistresses. In fact, DNA testing approves, has proved at least part of the story that... He had a child out of wedlock with one of his mistresses while he was president, and the story goes, allegedly, that he knocked her up in a closet outside the Oval Office in the West Wing during his time as president. He had guards assigned at the ends of the corridor to ensure he could get the job done without his wife or anyone else bursting and interrupting him. That's fucking nuts. Um, but that's not the most scandalous thing that's going to happen here. I can assure you, so grab your coffee and let's get into it. So, the year is roughly 1920-1921, and we have uh, the stone-cold pimp, Warren G. Harding, 
is president. The Ohio gang has made several recommendations to him on people that they think should be in office, and one of them they have recommended is Albert Bacon Fall. And they think he should be the Secretary of the Interior. So Harding appoints him there. He believes he's getting good, solid advice from these guys. And thus far, there's been no evidence to suggest he had any necessarily, you know, aside from his his promiscuity, there doesn't appear to be any sort of corporate payouts he was getting. Uh, he just thought he was getting good advice, so he went with it. Now, Albert Fall is an interesting character and um, plays a pivotal role in this. He's oftentimes attributed, incorrectly, as being the source of the phrase fall guy. And uh, <laughs> you'll see. So, who is this uh, This Albert Bacon Fall, aside from having a delicious middle name? Well, he initially started off in Kentucky, where he was born. He moved out to New Mexico, went to law school. He was in New Mexico while it was still a territory, and he actually practiced law in New Mexico for several years before he got himself appointed as a judge. Uh, Albert Fall was eventually elected to the Territorial Council and even got elected to becoming the Territorial Attorney General uh, before eventually, right after statehood, getting elected to the New Mexico House of Representatives and um, starting his political career. He took some time off during the Spanish-American War where he joined the Army and became an infantry captain and fought uh, in the Spanish-American War. And following the war, he returned to trial law. During his time as a trial lawyer, he got famous for defending several notorious outlaws in the American West. For instance, he successfully defended Jesse Wayne Brezel, who was accused of killing Sheriff Pat Garrett. And if you don't know who Pat Garrett was, he's the sheriff who shot Billy the Kid. So the guy that shot Billy the Kid got shot by Brezel, who was defended and acquitted by Albert Fall, who kind of became famous for being a criminal defense attorney in New Mexico. That was sort of his his thing. Eventually, he did wind up starting his own, uh, going back into politics and running for election to the U.S. Senate. And once he got elected, he very quickly met with the Ohio gang, and they decided this guy was A-OK. Uh, in fact, the exact quote from the Ohio gang, or you know what's alleged they said, is uh, that he was considered a very agreeable politician. The Ohio gang went to Harding and recommended that this Albert Bacon Fall be a, appointed as the Secretary of the Interior, that that'd be a good role for him, this, this you know, young senator that they've gotten to work with. And so the president appointed him there, and that's how we get to fall. Now, <clears throat> during this time, uh, the Ohio gang and Albert Fall start to convince President Harding that perhaps it would be better if the Department of the Interior managed these oil lands rather than the Department of the Navy. After all, the Navy has no experience running oil production. They have no experience with exploration. They don't know what they're doing. So these oil lands ought to be transferred to a more appropriate department, i.e. the Department of the Interior, who would be obviously much better equipped to handle domestic matters like that. And on paper, that makes logical sense, I suppose. Needless to say, in 1921, President Harding relented and issued an executive order that transferred Teapot Dome in Wyoming and Elk Hills and Buena Vista in California from the Department of the Navy to the Department of the Interior under Secretary Fall. Now, wasting no time at all, Secretary Fall immediately began negotiations and, very quickly after that, granted extremely generous leases 
to drill and operate these reserves to a couple of oil companies, specifically Sinclair Oil, yes, that Sinclair Oil, and Pan American Petroleum. Now, at this time, he engages in negotiations, he executes these leases, and they are extremely favorable. Sinclair Oil and Pan American paid virtually nothing to the government for them. They owed the government virtually nothing in royalties. They got to pocket huge amounts of the proceeds, and there was no competitive bidding process. They simply talked to the Secretary of the Interior. They hammered out a deal that they agreed on, shook hands, signed a few documents, and presumably that was that. Uh, for the most part, it has to be said that this wasn't illegal. At this time in the federal government, there was no requirement for there to be any sort of competitive bidding on government contracts. There was no requirement to uh, have any of this out in the open. The Secretary of the Interior was 100% legally empowered to make a deal and put whoever he wanted to put in charge of running these oil fields. There, there was nothing terribly illegal about any of this. So, the... Leases were given to Edward uh, Doheny of Pan American uh, Petroleum and Transport Company and Harry Sinclair of Mammoth Oil Corporation, a subsidiary of uh, Sinclair Oil, which he had founded and owned um, the prior decade. Now, by today's standards, this would all seem very uh, shady and illegal, but like I said, no requirements for any of the stuff to be all that transparent, no requirements for competitive bidding. Um, he can assign to everyone, so there's nothing here that's terribly mysterious or interesting. But I'll tell you what, what is kind of interesting, what is a little mysterious. Right after, and I mean within a month after these leases being transferred to Sinclair and to Pan American, Albert Fall came into a lot of money. So much money, in fact, that he paid 10 years' worth of back taxes in one lump sum. Uh, so much money that he bought several new properties. He renovated the homes that he already had. He bought an entirely new wardrobe. His entire standard of living practically uh, upgraded overnight. In fact, his lifestyle changed, his financial situation changed so much. It was so notable, the affluence that he suddenly had, that it was even reported in the Albuquerque Tribune, talking about how much, uh, how much of a windfall he had suddenly had. It was even commented on in the minutes of the Senate about how better dressed he was and how much more cash he seemed to have floating around. What's amazing to me in this whole process is that this is something that was so extravagant that it was literally remarked upon by his colleagues and by the news and yet no one put two and two together that there might be a bit more to this. Everyone just kind of shrugged and said, oh, I guess Secretary of the Interior pays really well. Um, I don't know. Maybe his great aunt Matilda died and left him a fuck ton of money. Like what? Nobody decided to put this together? Like what? But they didn't. At any rate, fast forward to April of 2022, not long after all this takes place. A oil operator in Wyoming writes to his senator about how downright unfair it is that these leases, especially in their own state in the case of Teapot Dome, 
were just handed over to these outside oil companies without any of the local operators getting a chance to bid on the work or be involved whatsoever. It just seemed absolutely rotten that they didn't get the chance, and and that just sucks, and it's not fair to the little guy mom-and-pop operators that could have gone in there and done a good job. Well, the senator, <clears throat> which is Senator John B. Kendrick uh, at the time, having already commented upon the lavish lifestyle Secretary Fall was indulging himself in, gets this letter, looks it over, and says, Yeah, you're right. Maybe that is bullshit. Huh. So the next day, he goes into the Senate and makes a resolution that they start an official investigation into Secretary Fall and the transfer of these leases to Sinclair Oil and Pan American. Well... The resolution passes, and the Senate starts appointing a committee, and that committee begins the formal investigation of Secretary of the Interior Albert Bacon Fall. For two years, a grueling and extremely unpleasant investigation start to fall, uh, start to happen. Fall and his friends, the Ohio Game, begin scrambling to cover their tracks. And it's very funny because, at least in the initial stages of this, there was a lot of speculation that there was nothing illegal going on here. There was just one kind of bitchy senator with one kind of bitchy oil operator in Wyoming, and that this was all just some partisan bullshit, that the Democrats were coming after them because, you know, it was the Republicans and all of that. I mean, it's the same thing we have today, right? The Democrats want to start an investigation of a president. We assume it's just this partisan nonsense. But things start to get a little interesting. Senator uh, La Folliette, who was assigned to lead the investigation, even went on record, and he was a Democrat, to say that he did not believe there was any wrongdoing, and this was a pro forma investigation that they were doing because the Senate appointed it, but there was no expectation of wrongdoing or that it was going to actually go anywhere. His story changed when one day he went to his office in the Senate office building and discovered it had been ransacked and all of his notes and all of the evidence that he had been sent copies of had been stolen from his office. Over the course of the next several years in this investigation, multiple senators' offices were broken into flagrantly. Anything relating to Teapot Dome or the leases or the correspondences started disappearing, and there were even files taken from the White House itself if they're in regards to the lease negotiations or the correspondence between Fall or Sinclair or Duhaney. That's wild. And I mean, not even trying to hide it, just pictures of wrecked offices where people went in there, upturned drawers, found anything they could relate to this, and took it. I mean, blatantly obvious shit, right? Insane. Even La Foyette who had gone on record as saying, I don't think there's anything here, was now suddenly forced to get in front of the media and say, well, it looks awfully suspicious, but all the evidence keeps getting stolen, which, by the way, maybe hire some guards. I don't know. That seems like a really simple solution. If you're having a problem with evidence getting stolen from people's offices during an investigation over the course of years, hire a couple of fucking guards. Just seems like the easy thing to do. But so many of the decisions the, the, the Senate makes during this time are kind of just softball dummy calls. I mean, they didn't get suspicious when they noticed how lavish a life he's living. And even during this investigation, during the first couple of years, it doesn't even occur to them to look at Albert Fall's finances. They just say, well, we're trying to look for lease records. We're trying to look for any evidence that he was having illegal correspondence or doing anything that was above board. But no one ever looked at the finances. That all just kind of faded into the background. 
Well, at this point, the scandal and the break-ins and just how salacious the whole thing looked was taking off. It was becoming a big, hairy deal. Uh, even President Harding was forced to answer questions about this, to which he publicly testified to the character of Secretary Fall as a good man and that the kind of corruption people are talking about would never exist in his cabinet. And this was all just, you know, sort of a, a hit by the Democrats or whatever. And, um, yeah, this was just, you know, complete nonsense. Well... Fast forward a little bit. Investigation keeps going, but they can't turn anything up. No matter how suspicious and blatantly obvious it is that someone is aggressively trying to cover this up, the evidence keeps getting stolen. They just can't seem to lock it down because nobody knows how to use a fucking padlock and a key. Or hire a security guard. Then, an idea comes to mind. Senator Thomas Walsh realizes that perhaps we've been going about this the wrong way for the past couple of years. As ridiculous as this whole situation is, maybe rather than trying to find government records that this was negotiated in bad faith or there was some sort of impropriety in transferring these properties, which to our knowledge there was none, maybe we should be looking at the finances of Secretary Fall. I mean, he did have an awful lot of money right after this happened. Perhaps there's something there. And there was. He gets a copy of the good secretary's bank records and discovers a fairly recent $100,000 loan from Duhaney of Pan American. And, um, uh, you know, one of the guys who had gotten the um, leases in California. Well, this sparks an even more in-depth investigation to Secretary Fall's financials. And it's discovered that there was tons and tons of money funneled to this guy in a very short period of time. To put it into context, he received something close to around $8 million in 2023 terms worth of payments and gifts from Sinclair and Duhaney. Now, at this point, they actually had some kind of evidence linking that Sinclair Oil and Pan American, or agents thereof, were paying off fall at, during, and immediately after the lease transfer. So now you've got some actual motive and some sort of indication that something improper has happened. And because they managed to get all these bank records and, and do this track down, the other side didn't have a chance to make the stuff go away before it got publicized. Now they've got a problem. So the investigation widens out. The Senate starts bringing charges up for bribery and corruption on the CEOs of these two companies, specifically Sinclair and um, Duhaney. They start getting brought into court. Their records start getting looked at. Uh, with a magnifying glass, and the whole thing is now spiraling out of control. <clears throat> to make matters worse, um, well, I mean, just to put it into perspective, while competitive bidding wasn't required, it was still quite illegal back then to bribe a government official to get properties handed over to them. That, that hasn't really changed. That was still a, a no-no even back then. As the case starts to continue spiraling and spiraling and spiraling, uh, the the impropriety case even gets all the way to the Supreme Court, who canceled Pan American and Sinclair Oil's contracts, ruling that the leases were obtained through corruption. Meanwhile, Henry Sinclair of Sinclair Oil went on trial. And while he was on trial, he, you know, what's funny is they couldn't find any evidence to really nail down Henry Sinclair or Harry Sinclair of any wrongdoing. They didn't have any actual hard evidence that he had committed the bribery. He had covered his tracks far too well. But Harry Sinclair, being a CEO and a nervous guy, decided that he needed an ace in the hole to ensure that he didn't go to jail. And so his solution was to hire a detective agency to follow, blackmail, and intimidate 
every member of the jury in his trial. And that was discovered. They discovered the receipts effectively for him hiring this agency. They discovered that they had been harassing this jury throughout the trial, and a mistrial was called, and a new trial went up. But the only thing they had on him that they could definitively prove is that he tried to tamper with the trial itself. (coughs) So, Sinclair did end up getting a guilty verdict on the jury tampering uh, side of the charges, and he received a whopping six-month sentence in prison. Now, his trip to prison was not... As bad as it could have been, objectively, the guy was a multimillionaire, probably billionaire by today's standards, and he was given better living conditions. He was given very easy jobs to do as a pharmacist's assistant uh, while he was in jail, and even was allowed to have the guards take him on drives around town whenever he got bored or just needed to get out for a little while. That's right. The rich guy was allowed to just get a guard to take him for a drive so he didn't have to sit in his cell all day. Needless to say, the public was even more infuriated at this preferential treatment for the rich guy that had gone to jail for jury tampering. Um, at any rate, Sinclair would serve his six months, and he would get out, and they could never make anything else stick to the guy. And so he would simply retire to his massive French Renaissance-style chateau in Pasadena, California, where he died quite a number of years later, still a very wealthy man and effectively untouchable. That being said, not everyone got off as easy as Sinclair. By 1929, Albert Fall had been found guilty of accepting bribes for favorable lease terms, and he was sentenced to one year in prison. In fact, he was the first uh, U.S. cabinet member to ever actually face charges and get convicted and go to prison. So he was sentenced to a year in prison. He was also charged a million dollars in 2023 terms, and um, Due to the massive fine he was given, he lost most of his properties um, and went on massively reduced financial means. And upon ending his prison term, basically just retreated to El Paso, Texas, bought a small home, and lived out the remainder of his life there in shame. So that's what happened to Fall, i.e. the Fall guy, the only one who ever really got convicted of wrongdoing uh, necessarily. I mean, if you think about it, Sinclair only got convicted of trying to tamper with a jury. They can never stick corruption or bribery any of that on him. President Warden didn't get out, or President Harding did not get out unscathed either. Now, this guy had suffered from various health issues throughout his life, various anxiety-related issues, not to mention various having mistress-related issues. Um, but at this point, he was under a lot of pressure. There were more and more questions starting to mount on how corrupt his administration was and how he had surrounded himself with all these wildly corrupt businessmen who were tampering with juries and doing bribery and doing all this other stuff. Um, And it was starting to take a toll on Harding. Harding even went on a tour of the west coast of Washington to give a number of speeches rather than engage with the Senate during the investigation. And it was during this trip that he finally keeled over and died from heart and... um, pneumonia-related issues. At any rate, not long after his death, even more of this evidence would come out, as well as the evidence about his various many affairs and lots of other corrupt officials. And while Harding himself never really 
uh, seemed to be involved as far as most evidence could point to about being directly involved in the corruption. He was surrounded by people he picked that were all absolute degenerate dirtbags. And as a result, his legacy as president has been pretty well tarnished. That being said, Doheny had a much more interesting continuation to his story. So they brought Doheny up on charges just like they did Sinclair, trying to prove that he had paid him off. And while they could prove that these were the two companies and the two people that benefited from these leases, and they could prove that Fall had received huge sums of money from them, they couldn't quite connect the dots. They couldn't quite definitively prove that Sinclair had had given the money. He'd covered his tracks much too well. And Doheny as well had been fairly clever about it. Uh, They couldn't find anything that directly related to Doheny. What he had done, it appears, is he had gotten all these millions of dollars that he was using in the bribes, and he had transferred it to his son, Ned Doheny Jr., and to his personal assistant, Hugh, uh, let's see, what was this guy's name? Hugh Plankert, Plankert, Pritchard. I think it was Pritchard. Let's see here. Yeah, Hugh Pritchard. So he had pulled this money out, and he had given it to his assistant, and he had given it to his son. And it was Plunkett. That's the name, Plunkett. And these two individuals then got the money personally to Secretary Fall. But they couldn't tie it. They couldn't say what this was for because, officially speaking, these two individuals really didn't directly uh, gain any any sort of monetary advantage theoretically from Doheny uh, personally owning these leases. But they got the money, and they got the money downrange. But they still couldn't quite connect the dots. They couldn't get all the way back to, to Doheny Sr., and they couldn't quite get enough to lock up Ned or Hugh. But the noose was tightening. The evidence was constricting. It was slowly starting to choke them. So much so that more and more dirt was coming up on the Dehaney family. At the time, Dehaney Sr., who was desperately trying to avoid getting implicated in this, and he was smart enough not to mess with the jury. He was smart enough to know that he had put enough of a barrier between himself and uh, the act that he couldn't be nailed down on it. But what he now had to worry about was that his son or his former assistant might spill the beans and implicate him in exchange for not going to jail themselves. So this guy tries to get his son and his assistant locked in a mental institution and declared insane with a special provision that they could not testify in any criminal proceedings due to their diminished mental state. Now, eventually, he could not get that pushed through, but he tried it. He tried to get them declared mentally unfit and locked in an asylum so that they could not testify against him. And the noose was tightening. I mean, this investigation at this point had been going on since 1922, and it's at this point 1929. There are signs of cracks uh, forming between Ned and Hugh and Doheny Sr. And at any point, somebody's probably going to crack to try and save their life or their career or their financial situation. And then the next bombshell drops. Rumors start to swirl as the Senate investigates deeper and deeper into Hugh and Ned uh, Doheny that not only 
was Ned Doheny's son. Not only was Hugh Doheny's personal assistant, but now rumors are coming out that they were engaged in a gay affair. That both men were engaged in some sort of a love triangle that 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 was also a thing happening. Doheny's name is trashed. He's shamed. It's 1920s. You can't have that sort of thing coming out in the public. So now there's all sorts of rumors swirling around his family and what a disgrace it is. And shareholders are starting to get upset. And all the while, the Senate is closing in on getting one of these three people to crack to give up the others. February 16th, 1929, Ned, Hugh, and Doheny Sr. are at their house. A shouting argument has gotten into. Other family members are there, but they're in different parts of the mansion. Now, well, what happens next has never been proven or specifically nailed down. What we do know that happens is that gunshots are reported. And three hours after the gunshots are reported, the police arrive on the scene to discover that Ned Doheny and Hugh, the assistant, have been killed. Doheny Sr. is there, but Doheny Sr., indicates that he was not in the room for the entire argument. And what it is ruled by the police is a murder-suicide between Ned and Hugh, presumably over the reputations being tarnished about a potential relationship coming to light between them. Ned was certainly married and had children. And again, we're talking about the 1920s. That sort of thing just didn't fly. At any rate, Doheny Sr. manages to avoid yet again any implication the police, for whatever reason, do not investigate it further. I can assume a few reasons, and most of them are green, but at any rate, they immediately declare it a murder-suicide, and Doheny Sr. walks scot-free without so much as a charge filed against him. That being said, he's almost instantly hit with a shareholder's lawsuit between the talks about the relationships that his son was having, between the ongoing Senate investigation, the shareholders have had enough at Sinclair Oil and file a lawsuit against Doheny Sr. He nearly dies after suffering multiple strokes and throwing himself into the fucking sun, retreats and becomes a hermit in his mansion, refusing to see anybody and basically just trying to avoid his continual declining health issues. For the most part, he became an invalid and a recluse that his wife had to actually take care of while he was dogged through the rest of his days by various different shareholders' lawsuits. Teapot Dome was the greatest American scandal in politics, dealing with the oil industry for decades. Before there was Watergate, before there was the Iran-Contra, before there was... Uh, anything you want to nail on Trump, and before there was Hunter Biden and his nonsense, there was Teapot Dome. A story so wild and so insane that it captured the imagination of the country for literally centuries. Before Watergate was the term for political corruption, it was Teapot Dome. And the story is absolutely batshit. It's got everything. So... To top it all off, Teapot Dome has affected us in some other ways. Not long after the scandal broke loose, Upton Sinclair, who, as you may know, wrote several books that were effectively just thin veneers for a socialist manifesto, published yet another one called Oil! Exclamation point, where he talks about the greed of capitalism and how oil companies were just terrible to their workers and 
uh, you know, all of this. It was inspired by the Teapot Dome scandal and let him have yet another mouthpiece to go on about his socialist manifesto. The book Oil itself would eventually inspire yet another media creation, and this one is a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis called There May Be Blood, which is loosely inspired by the events in Oil, which in itself is inspired by the Teapot Dome scandal. So, if you've ever watched There May Be Blood, if you've ever read Oil, this is the scandal that originally happened. This is what went down, this is how it went, and this is what inspired that. So, that is the first part in our Scandal series. Like I said, I will be um, doing these throughout the year. Sometimes, uh, you know, I may be able to get more than one of them in an episode. Sometimes not. But I do hope you guys enjoyed it and found it as interesting as I did. But that is what we have time for today. This is Jordan Driscoll, you, Jordan Driscoll reminding you that there will be blood. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.